that oh you have Iman, you should have Taqwa, you should fear Allah Ta'ala, be aware of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala and a way to do that is Kunu Ma Sadiqeen that you must join your heart and being to the Sadiqeen, to the people who are true. Now one is to try to find somebody living who is from the Sadiqeen. Sadiqeen can be anyone who you feel is truer than you in your deen, closer to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala than you are. That Allah Ta'ala has blessed us in this Ummah that we are an Ummah of Sadiqeen, Muttaqeen, Sadiqeen. These are words in Qur'an al-Kareem. And if all of you would remember in Surah Al-Fatiha when we make Dua and Yenus Sirat Al-Mustaqeem, that we ask Allah to give us Hidayah. Allah chose to define Hidayah as Sirat Al-Mustaqeem, the straight path. And Allah chose to define Sirat Al-Mustaqeem, the straight path, as Sirat Al-Nadina Anamta Alayhim. It's a path of people whom you, Allah Ta'ala, have sent your blessings. And then these words are in Quran, Oliya, Siddiqin, Sadiqin, Muttaqin. Now many times history will make that determination. History has unanimously made that decision about Imam al-Ghazali, Ta'ala, that he was from the great Oliya, Siddiqin, Sadiqin, Salihin of the Sumba. More than 900 years have passed, more than 900 years have passed since he has passed away from this world. And still people today benefit from his works and writings and teachings. And right here is another alama sign of his kubuliyah. And we are sitting here in Lahore and benefiting from Imam al-Ghazali letters and teachings. So he is a person who in his own life benefits so many people. Who after he passed away benefits so many people. This is the person who we call Makbul. Makbul in the law, Mahbubullah. He's accepted by Allah Ta'ala and beloved to Allah Subhanahu And especially in this day and age, when we find ourselves that there are so few really true, sincere Sadiqin left. So in this day and age, it's important that we look to our history, we look to our tradition, and we try to learn from the great personalities that Allah Subhanahu has blessed our Ummah with in the way to follow Allah Ta'ala's in Quran. So this is the niya intention we make when we begin this course is of kunu ma'asadikin that Yerub Bikrin you told me to join my being and to learn my being from those of the ummah who return the sadikin. Now a very very brief account of Imam Ghazali's life because actually we have very little time today and more importantly I want to tell you about this text. And Rasulullah said in a reliable Hasan hadith that at the turn of every century, Allah Ta'ala will send a mujaddid, somebody who would do the deen of deen, who would renew and revive their deen. The overwhelming majority of ulama of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah believe that Imam al Ghazali was the mujaddid of his century. This would be the sixth Islamic Hidri century in the turning of the fifth century. 
Imam Ghazali was born in 450 Hijri, which translates to 1058 Common Era. He was born in Tus, which is modern-day Iran. He is Persian ethnically. He's not an Arab. He's ethnically Persian. Alright? Then, in his young age, he traveled to Nishapur to study the Ilm of Deen. Nishapur is also in Iran, present-day Iran, Persia. And at that time, there was a great scholar who would later go to Haramein. His name was Imam Haramein al-Juwaini Rimalatala. And he studied under this great scholar. Imam Juwaini Rimalatala, sorry, Imam Juwaini had been in the Haramein for many years and now had returned back to Nishapur and eventually he would pass away there at 1085, which is 478 Hijri. Then Imam Ghazali Rimalatala met a person by the name of Nizam al-Mulk, who is also a very important historical figure in our team. He was, strictly speaking, a vizier, but he had a vision. And his vision was to establish institutions of Islamic learning, which is called the Nizamiya. And in the Nizamiya academy or colleges or institutes, he wanted to produce a new class of ulama. Ulama who were versed in logic and philosophy and rhetoric. Ulama who were versed in the sciences of that time, which were principally medicine, astronomy, geometry, mathematics. And they were also versed in Qur'an, Tafsir, Hadith, Usul, Fiqh, etc. And so he established these academies in different parts of the Islamic Empire because Nizam al was very close to the Khalifa, the ruler of that time. So then Imam al-Ghazali, when he met Nizam al-Mulk, the Nizam al-Mulk was very impressed by him. And he selected Imam al-Ghazali to teach at the main campus of the Nizamiya colleges, which was in Baghdad, Baghdad, modern-day Iraq. Baghdad at that time was the ultimate center of Islamic learning, of Islamic civilization, even of Islamic astronomy, of Islamic poetry, of Islamic scholarship. Baghdad was the, you can say, intellectual, spiritual capital. Great people preceded Imam Ghazali in Baghdad, such as Imam Jalil Baghdadi, like the great Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jilani Rimunatala. So Baghdad already had a great tradition of incredible ulama and uliya who lived there. Baghdad was also a city of Mahaddisin, a city of Fuqaha, a city of scholars of Hadith and Islamic law. The very next year, it is a historical point that Nizam al-Mulk was assassinated when he was on the tour of Khorasan, which is again an area between Iran and modern-day Iran and Afghanistan. And in 1095, after five years of teaching in this Baghdad Nizamiya, and within five years, Imam al-Ghazali became the Sadr Mudarris, which means the leading the Dean of Academics, or to use an Oxford term, the Dawn of Academics at the Nizamiya College in Baghdad. And he became the single most famous and renowned and sought after Islamic scholar in the world at that time. And then in 1095, Common Era, which is 488 Hijri, all of it suddenly decided to quit. And he actually has written this in another one of his works, and he even mentions the month Zikada 488. The Zikada 488 corresponds to November 1095. In November 1095, he quit. Now, not in this letter that we're going to do, but in a separate work of his, which is also available in English, it's called Al-Mulkid Min Al-Dalal, Deliverance from Error. This is his own partial autobiography where he talks more about his spiritual journey. He mentions that he retires at this time in order to find Al-Mustanta. And he says that he went through two crises of faith. The first crisis of faith, and many people, they misunderstand this. They think that he had a crisis in faith in which he doubted Allah 
Strictly speaking, he never ever doubted the existence in Allah His first crisis was he doubted his own ability to know. He doubted himself, not Allah He doubted himself. That is it possible for me to know anything? And it can happen sometimes to a person in their life. That something happens to them that they get so shaken up, they doubt their very own perception. They doubt their knowledge. They doubt everything they thought to be true because they're doubting themselves. So he had this crisis. He had this crisis. Now how did he come out of this crisis? He doesn't explain. He just gives two lines. Two verses from Quran. And he says that Allah SWT cast a nur in my heart. Allah Ta'ala cast the nur of hidayah in my heart. Allah Ta'ala says this in Quran, the whom serve Allah Ta'ala wishes hair. Allah Ta'ala guides him. Guides him to the deen of Islam. Allah Ta'ala expands his chest. Yashrah sadruhu al-Islami fuhuwa ala nurim min rabbihi. So he writes that, that I got the sharah sadr and that Allah gave me a nur. Okay, that was the first crisis done, resolved by Allah Ta'ala. Second, was now that he was restored to his ability and self-confidence that he can know and be certain. Now what he wanted to find was what is the most certain path that will make me closer to Allah Ta'ala. Now he wanted the qurb of Allah Ta'ala, the bazaar of Allah Ta'ala. So in that process, and that's a very long story, but basically he looks at different groups around at his time who claim to provide certainty. And he ends up concluding that the people who are the most truly certain themselves about Allah and the ones who can most certainly guide a person to the qurb and nearness to Allah they were the people of Tasawwuf. The people of Tasawwuf, the people of Tazkiyah, the people of Zuhud, the people of Zikr. And then he says that when I realized that, I started reading all of their works. When I read all of their works, I realized that the feelings they have, I can't get those feelings just by reading their books. I can get the knowledge by reading the books they wrote. I can understand their knowledge of how to discipline the nafs, how to lower the gaze. And then he writes the whole book, I'll tell you that later. I can get that knowledge. But to get the feelings, I have to do the practices of ibadah that they do. I have to make the zikr of Allah Ta'ala so much such that I can forget the world entirely. Then once I've forgotten the world entirely, I have to remain in that state of zikr so that I go drowning deep in the connection of Allah And alhamdulillah then, he spends 10 years of his life in total on this journey. Two years he travels away from his family, and then two years he comes back and he returns to his family, but he doesn't resume teaching. For eight more years he engages in the worship of Allah Subhanahu and then he starts writing. And it's in this ten year period that he wrote his most famous work, Iyaluddin. And Iyaluddin, he talks about things, about how a person can become closer to Allah And it would be a wonderful world if this book was still taught in entirety. To my knowledge, I don't know a single place in Pakistan where the Iyaluddin is taught entirely. And it's a tragedy, because that is a masterpiece of the Islamic intellectual tradition, and it contains so many wonders, and guidance, and teachings, and examples, and inspirations, and motivations for how one person can become closer to Allah SWT. Here then, the 10-year period ended, he decided that he should resume his teaching. 
He felt that now I have done khidmat of deen, dawat of deen through, number one, fixing myself. Number two, writing this work, which he felt was very important. And now that I've finished writing this masterpiece work, now I must resume public teaching and public preaching. I must resume public teaching and public preaching. So he returned in the year 499 Hijri, corresponding to 1106 to teaching. But this time, because he was older, he chose not to go back to the Nizamiya College in Baghdad, but he stayed in, the, in his own hometown of Nishapur, or not his hometown, but his early town of Nishapur, close to his hometown of Tus, and he began teaching the Nizamiya Academy over there. And then in 504, 1110, after five years of teaching, due to old age and ill health, he decided to retire for that reason, and he returned home to Tus, and he passed away within one year after retiring, and he, the exact date of his passing away would correspond to Monday, December 18, 1111. I'm not telling you this, don't worry the people who are listening online, you don't know Urdu, this is something they do in Pakistan. I'm telling you this just so you get an idea when I told you more than 900 years have passed, right? So it's 905, four years have passed since Imam Ghazali passed away from this world. Alright? Okay. His very last work, what's the very last thing he wrote? So the scholars of Imam Ghazali, both in the Islamic tradition and in the Western University tradition, have narrowed it down to two possibilities. One is a work of his called Minhaj al-Abideen. And maybe one day, inshallah, we will also try to teach you that. And one is this letter. This letter that he wrote. Now, to give you some context of this letter, so when Imam Ghazali went back, like I told you, after those two years' journey, in those eight years he established something in Arabic which is called a Zawiyah. In Persian, and then Urdu also to get from Persian, it's called a Hanka. In Turkish, it's called a Teki. It means a masjid that along with having the five times prayer, it has activities specifically designed to train a person in Ibadah and Zikr. So it's like a training ground where people learn how to pray with concentration, how to make Tilaud with concentration, how to make Dua with feeling, how to remember Allah Ta'ala in their heart. So that's a special, like they, in the olden times, that masjid, which also was specially designed to teach ulum al-deen. That was called the madrasa. Madrasa was not a separate building, it was the masjid. But madrasa would be that masjid where in addition to five times prayer, there was a whole schedule of classes in tafsir and hadith and fiqh and history. Alright? So he established the Hanka Taki Zawiya masjid in Tus. And during that time, when he resumed his teaching at Nishapur and Tus were close to each other, when he was teaching in Nishapur, he would go back and forth. One of his Alam Corps students, one of the students, in the, most likely in the Nizamiya Mothers of Nishapur, but it's clear that it was one of his students in Il, who also was his student in Tasawwuf and Tazkiyah and Zikr. After having graduated and qualified as an Alam of Deen, means a person who was an alim and now has the knowledge of tafsir and hadith, wrote him a letter. And in that letter he asked his ustad and his shaykh, Imam al-Ghazali, some questions. Imam al-Ghazali replied to all of the questions in that letter. That reply became like a public answer that was circulated between and amongst the other ulama in that area, and then it spread across the Islamic empire, such that people at that time, because it was before the printing press, people would start copying it out. And there are many manuscripts of this survive. Even in the British Library, there's a manuscript of this. 
and it became basically a text, or what today mean you would call a book, it became published in that way. And then very soon after, obviously, the printing press came into the Arab world, it became printed. Alright? So this is some very brief biography of Imam Ghazali Matala and an introduction to this work. Now, you will see here that the translator, let me give you just a piece of the translator. The translator is a non-Muslim who has a PhD from Oxford, is very skilled in Arabic. And there's no mistakes in his translation as far as Arabic to English goes. But sometimes the selection of the English term used to translate an Arabic term isn't really the right selection. So at times I will depart from the translation. Alright? So I'm actually not even sure they all have it with them. Some of you have it with them. Some of you, some of you may have it in front of you. The rest you may be looking at it there. But in any case, I'm going to be translating it sometimes a little differently, sometimes exactly the same, sometimes very differently from what the translator did. Alright? And, so, and every now and then I will show you the reasons for that in the Arabic version. Imam al-Zahir begins in the classic way of all medieval writing. So he says, now this is a copyist who will write the introduction. So the person who is described, who copies this out, he writes, you can say, like an editor's preface, a uh, copyist preface. That you should know that one of the... Let me just make this bigger... When he says here Talabat al-Mutakaddameen, it can mean one of the old, early students of Imam al-Ghazali. That's more likely the correct translation. But the translator says one of the more advanced students of Imam al-Ghazali. The reason why we won't think he's one of the advanced students is, as you will see in the letter, he's a fresh graduate. He's a recent graduate. Alright? So one of the early students of Imam al-Ghazali, one of the advanced students of Imam al-Ghazali, he kept in the khidmat of his shaykh. So here I will just show you, if you look, if you can see the pointer, the word Sheikh. Unfortunately, here the person has translated the word Sheikh as Master. Now, one principle of translation between two languages is once you use a word for a particular word, you can't use it for another word. Don't worry, I'll explain to you. Once you use a word for a particular word, you can't use it for another word. The English word master is used for the Arabic word malik. Once you use the English word master for the Arabic word malik, you cannot use the English word master for another word. So, because all of you know enough about Islam to understand the word sheikh, so I will just leave it untranslated. But the point is that it's also not appropriate to call a sheikh a master. Sheikh is not master. Allah is master. Sheikh is teacher. Sheikh is instructor. Sheikh is tutor. There can be many English words a person can use for Sheikh. So this is a mistake. Why did he make this mistake? Well, he was thinking perhaps in the Western martial arts Kung Fu tradition that you call the person Master. Master Bruce Lee or Master Grandmaster Sifu Sensei. He may be thinking like that. Alright? 
But in our deen, it's better not to use the word master for anyone. And you will notice that in our deen, we never use that. Right? In Urdu, mashallah, you say master sahab. In Urdu, you say master sahab. Nobody ever gave a fatwa of bid'a on the schools calling their instructors master sahab. So it's a British thing. You got this concept of master from headmaster and headmistress. So this is also, I told you, a person who did PhD in Oxford. So the British feeling is there. But for us, in our deeny feeling, we don't want to use the English word master for shaykh. Alright? And I can tell you, I'm sure that Imam al-Ghazali would also not have wanted that. So that I would just leave as shaykh. Okay? And another, sometimes like that, other words that you should know without needing a sahih. Again, the translator translates for people who are non-Muslims, who don't even know the word salah, he'll write prayer, who don't know the word imam, don't know the word shaykh. I'm going to leave those Arabic words as you see them in Arabic, unfriendly. Alright. So he kept the sunnah of a shaykh, Imam Zainuddin, Hundred of Islam, Abi Hamid ibn Muhammad al Ghazali, Rimallahu ta'ala. Qutsullahu ruhahu. And he kept the khidmat of a shaykh. These were two lakrab titles given to Imam al Ghazali, Zainuddin. Zainuddin means the jewel, the gem, the ornament of deen. Hujjatul Islam means the proof of Islam. Why did people call him this later on? In his lifetime, he wasn't called this. Because they thought that, you see, another thing you should know about his history is he was writing in an age of philosophers. Al-Kindi, Al-Razi. Al-Kindi was before him, Ibn Sina was before him, Al-Razi was after him. Alright? And he, a lot of people were confused. And they were seeing that all the intellectual people seemed to leave Islam and end up on the philosophy side. But when Imam al-Ghazali, who was more intelligent than all of them, more intellectual than all of them, but he remained firm and steadfast on classical Islam, so they used to call Imam al-Ghazali his place in history, that he is the hujjah, he is the proof of Islam. The fact that somebody as intelligent as Imam al-Ghazali, who read all of Ibn Sina's philosophy, who was familiar with all of Greek logic and reasoning, still chose to prefer the Qur'an and Sunnah, his choice and his life and his legacy makes him a hujjah, makes him a proof of the deen of Islam. Can you imagine a person like that, whose place in history was that he established himself as a hujjah, as a proof of the veracity of the deen of Islam. Okay. Then, this person occupied themselves by acquiring the knowledge from Imam al-Ghazali and reciting back what they had learned to him. Until this point that this student then had gathered the very fine, subtle points of the Islamic disciplines of learning. And he had also worked hard towards the completion of good characteristic traits inside himself. Then one day the student started reflecting. And he started reflecting on the condition of his own self. And... A thought occurred to him, a thought occurred to him, a thought occurred to him and he said to himself that look, I have recited and studied and read and learned many different branches of Islamic learning and I've spent a lot of my life in learning and acquiring and gathering and collecting all of these learnings and now what befits me is that I should learn and discover which of these Knowledges that I have learned is going to be a benefit to me tomorrow, means on the day of judgment. And which one will be my companion in my grave? Which one will be my companion in my grave? And which one of the things I have learned is not a benefit for me so that I can then leave it? And this is according to the state 
According to the saying of Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu Allahumma a'udhu bika min ilmin la yamfa That Nabiya Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa to make this dua That Allah ta'ala seek refuge in you from that knowledge which does not benefit So here before we even learn from Imam al-Ghazali We can learn from the students That this is the adab of knowledge That when I learn, I'm not just learning for the sake of being educated I'm not just learning for the sake of learning I'm doing this learning to bring myself closer to Allah Taala. Now after I've done my learning, I need to now analyze my learning and see what of the things I've learned is going to make Allah Ta'ala happy with me on the Day of Judgment. I need to focus on that. And what are the things that maybe are going to be irrelevant or even worse harmful for me, I better discard that and let go of that, even though yes, I may have spent some effort in learning it. Alright. And it also shows, and you know, you can really uh, care. Alright. فَاسْتَمَرَّتْ هَذِهِ الْفِكْرَةُ حَتَّى كَتَبَ إِلَى حَزْرَةِ الشَّيْخِ حُجَّةِ الْإِسْلَامِ مُحَمَدُ الْغَزَادِيرِ مُحَمَدُ الْغَزَادِيرِ This thought kept occurring in him and kept prolonging in him and he kept continued thinking this until he wrote. Now if you look here in the Arabic, حَزْرَةِ الشَّيْخِ You may be surprised, you may have thought حَزْرَةِ was some Dilbandi Sufi Desi word used in Punjab. Hazrat is a word being used oh, almost a thousand years ago. What does the word Hazrat mean? Right? And Huzur. And may you understand why the Urdu people started calling Sayyidina Rasulullah, he some Huzur and Hazrat. And then sometimes people get confused and you call the Shaykh Hazrat when we call the Prophet Hazrat. Actually, in the classical Arabic Islamic tradition, the Prophet was never called Hazrat or Huzur. He was called Rasulullah. Nabi Kareem, Rasul and Nabi. He was not given these other words. These words were given for Shaykh. Now what does Huzur and Hazrat mean? It comes from the Arabic verbal noun Huzur to be Hazir. It means that person in whose heart is always present the remembrance of Allah Ta'ala. Such a person would be called Huzur or would be called Hazrat. This is the classical usage of this term. And you can see it in you. And this person, by the way, prepared this text this Arabic text from the earliest manuscripts you can find. And that's way before Urdu, Desi culture. Alright? So the word Hazrat and Huzur was used in the classical Arabic tradition for a Shaykh who was a wali of Allah subhanahu ta'ala for that Shaykh that in their heart, the person felt that their heart is always present with the zikr of Allah ta'ala. Harabrat Allah ki yaad un ki zimme hazare. Harabrat un ka hoshe Allah ta'ala ki barame. Alright? This is the use of that term. Okay? Alright. So that's another interesting thing you learn when you look at the Arabic. There, so he wrote his shayf. Alright. Istitha'an, first he asked him some legal rulings. Wasa'alu masail, and then he asked him some questions. Wal-tasama and then he asked for some nasiha, some guidance. Wudu'a, and he asked him for du'a. He asked him four things. Some legal rulings, he asked him some questions, he asked him, give me some general guidance in nasiha, and he wants you to make du'a for me. Alright. And then he wrote him also that, look, I know that the writings of Shaykh, like Ihyal Mudin and other ones, actually contain the answers to all of the different things that I'm asking. However, now listen to what he says, like in the maksudi, but rather my maksud, my purpose, my intention, Shaykh, in writing you this letter and asking you these things, is what? Ayyaktubah yaktub, Shaykh, hajati fi walakatin. That my Shaykh should summarize 
everything I need for me in a few leaflets, a few sheets of paper, in a few pages, on a few pages. And I will keep these pages with me for the rest of my entire life. And I will practice upon them for all of my years to come. Now that's a very different way of writing a letter. One is to write as Sheikh an email, dear Sheikh, answer these questions. And one is to write after that, and I will take your answer so much to heart that I will keep your answer with me for the rest of my life and I will practice upon the guidance you give me for the rest of your life. So perhaps because he wrote Imam Ghazali with such sincerity, with such ikhlaq, that's why as you're going to see, Imam Ghazali gives such a long answer and such a detailed answer, right? And indeed in some ways, and that's why we chose to teach you this text, indeed he summarized, or you can't say summarized entire, but put some of the very important teachings of those longer works, such as Iyal Madir, in this short letter, spanning a few pages. And then he does the other, Insha'Allah, Insha'Allah Ta'ala, that if Allah Subhanahu wills, I will practice this for the rest of my life. So now the copy is done. He says, so Shaykh Imam Ghazali wrote this following. Now letter that you're going to see in response to the Shaykh and Allah Ta'ala knows best. So first Imam Ghazali's response. So those of you who have the handout, you would be on the bottom, it will say page 5, or page 4 of the English. So the first thing he does is he calls the student of his, his son. Ayyuhal Balad al-Muhibbul Aziz That, O oh my beloved, dear son So this is Imam al-Ghazali Without love for the student And that love is likely predating the question But the love is also ignited by the manner In which the student asked the question So some people, they have named this text Just after this first line Ya Ayyuhal Balad Sorry, just Ayyuhal Balad Not Ya Ayyuhal Balad Ayyuhal Balad that, O oh, son, sometimes this text is just titled like that. Ayyuhal Walad. Ayyuhal Walad al-Muhibbul Aziz. And then the very first thing he does for him is he makes du'a for him. Although the du'a was the fourth thing he asks. The very first thing he makes du'a. Atallahu baqaq bita'adihi wa salaka bika sabila ahibba'ihi. That may Allah Ta'ala prolong your life in obedience to him. Make you have long, lifelong lasting obedience to him. And may Allah Ta'ala make you travel always in the path of those who are the true lovers and beloveds of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. Then, so that's the answer to the dua. Then he goes backward, third with the nasihat. So then he, Imam Zali responds that, look, the nasihat that you want is already written in Ma'din al-Rikhala, in the treasure mines of the Prophet Sallallahu hadith and teachings. You see, he's talking to an Allah and says, look, you've already read all the hadith, all the nasihat, all the guidance you need is already there. It's already there. And then he asked him a question. In kanakal balagakam minhum nasiha. That if you have received nasiha from him, yani sayyidna rasulullah sallallahu because you are alam of hadith, fa ayyu hajatin laka fi nasihati. What need do you have of any advice from me? Fa in lam yabluka. And if nasiha from him has not reached you, fa kuni maza hasam tu fi hadihish. Fa hadihin sinina. 
Al-Mahdiyah. That what in the world have you acquired in these past years? It means you're a Talib. <laughs> if you're going to tell me that no, I didn't get Nasir from the Prophet Wasallam, then I'm asking you, what in the world were you doing all this year studying in the Madrasa? Allahu Akbar. Ajeeb. So this is the first thing. Now, obviously, one is studying Hadith and one is being taught Hadith. So then Imam Ghazali is going to begin with the Hadith. Telling him the guidance and the seers in the Hadith, you should have read that. But okay, let me highlight some particular Hadith to guide you. So he says that, oh my dear beloved son, from amongst all the things that the Prophet advised about, there is this Hadith of his, the sign that Allah Ta'ala has turned away from one of his creatures, servants, and slaves. Ishtighaluhu bima la ya'nihi is that Allah Ta'ala makes that slave of his busy with that which does not concern him. In order to means Allah Ta'ala makes him busy with things that are of no benefit to him. That's a sign that means Allah Ta'ala's mercy has turned away from that person. Then he says that if any moment, sa'a is normally translated as moment, but he's, literally it's hour, but normally it's used to mean moment. That if any single moment of his life passes in what? In that, in other than that which he was created for. Means, that a human was created of servitude. Doesn't have to be ibadat. But obedience, servitude, remembrance of Allah even if they're working in the factory, they're working in the office, they're teaching or studying in the university, but their heart should be in a state of ubudiyya. And any moment, this is the hadith continuing, any moment, <coughs> any moment that a person spends in his life, and other than that, then, Nabi Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, what? That it is <clears throat> hasrat again so you, because you know Urdu we wouldn't really call it affliction it means that his hasrat his sadness his sorrow should be prolonged because he's wasting his life then the Mir Karim Sassam continued وَمَنْ جَاوَزَ الْأَرْبَعِينَ وَلَمْ يَغْلِبْ that that person who crosses the age of 40 and the good in him does not become dominant over the bad in him he might as well prepare himself and get ready to enter the fire of Jahannam alright so then Imam Masai after mentioning the hadith he tells him look in this hadith is enough nasiha for Ahlul Ilm for the people of knowledge this one hadith is enough to knock you in your senses. That's what he's telling This one hadith is enough of guidance for you. Now let me explain this hadith a little bit. Now obviously a person after 40, they can turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Alright? No doubt. There are people who accepted Iman, became Sahabi after the age of 40. Still to this day, we meet, I personally met people who turned to Allah ta'ala after the age of 40. What Sayyidina Rasulullah was talking about a certain person who was born and raised and trained on Deen of Islam. Because some people might be born and raised, but they weren't trained. I have that third word. Hmm? Born and raised and trained. You see, born and raised and wild is something else. And born and raised and trained is something else. 
and born and raised and trained in dunya and secularism as opposed to being trained in Islam. That is even something else. But for the person who was born and raised and trained from their early youth, years in deen of Islam, and despite that tarbiyah and talim of deen, and that's why he's saying it's for the Ahlul Ilm. So it's very important that and Imam Zali made it clear this hadith is enough for the Ahlul Ilm. That you were alim, you studied deen in your te- teens, in your twenties, you taught deen in your thirties, you were a preacher, and then still by the age of forty you still don't have good in you, you might as well just get ready for the fire of death. In fact, much of Imam Ghazali's writings, Rimulatama, were directed to the ulama, or to especially to the young ulama. He was the master murabbi. He was doing tabiyyah. He was training, bringing the moral, spiritual rectification and purification of these young ulama. Alright? But, no doubt, uh, we should not think that it only applies to the ulama, because every hadith of Nabi Karim is equally applicable to every person in the ummah. So what we should think is basically we need to get busy. And how much of our life have we wasted up till now? Has the khair in us really ghalib in the sharnas? Is our modesty more than our behayai? Do we have more truth than we have falsehood? Do we have more humility than we have arrogance? What do we have more in us? We need to assess ourselves in light of this hadith of Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu Next page. <laughs> then after this one nasiha, Jeeb Muhammad says something. That nasiha, oh my dear beloved son, that nasiha is easy. Easy to give and easy to hear. But what's difficult, well, mushkulu kubuluha, kubuluha. What's difficult is accepting that nasiha and living your life according to it. Why? Because what's happened now in the temperaments and the personalities of people is rather to follow their nafs, their hawa to follow their whims and desires and passions. And for such people what happens that the things that Allah Ta'ala has prohibited have become beloved to their hearts. And especially, especially he says that that person who is a student of ilm that that person who is a student of the formal disciplines of Islamic learnings and he has spent his time has spent his time <coughs> You can say indulging his nafs and glorifying the dunya. Then when that person, they should realize that knowledge alone, knowledge alone will not suffice for them as the salvation on the day of judgment. Knowledge alone means that he's saying is you must do amal on that ill. You must practice that knowledge. And a lot of us have the same problem as not just for a talib of ill. A lot of us, we know things about deen. Some persons, sometimes people like to say, I'm very well read in Islam. I'm self-read in Islam. I have a bookshelf in Islam. It doesn't matter how many books or how many bookshelves you have. It doesn't matter how well-read, self-read you are. The question is how much you practice and live that knowledge. On the day of judgment, you won't get a pass on what you know. You will get a pass on what you practice and what you lived and who you were. This is what Imam Azari Matal is saying. So the people, the person who thinks if anybody thinks that the knowledge alone will get them salvation and therefore that he's mustadri al-amal that he doesn't need to practice he said that was the way the philosophers used to think that was the way the philosophy they thought educate and it's very similar today 900 years later a certain type not every secular person a certain type of secular person thinks that knowledge alone makes a person civilized knowledge alone makes a person cultured degrees and education alone makes a person refined where actually refinement is due to practice, is due to behavior, 
is due to how you interrelate with others is due to the state of your heart that's what it's not just knowledge alone so apparently at that time that was the thought of the prophet at that time Imam says may Allah be glorified above above and beyond any and all such false conceptions and then he says that this self-deluded person doesn't realize doesn't know that look that that knowledge that they've acquired if they don't practice that knowledge that knowledge then will count against them on the day of judgment it won't count for them that ilm will count against them on the day of judgment that knowledge that we did not practice will count against us on the day of judgment and then he quotes a hadith of Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Allahu Akbar Kabira Ashadu nasi azab in yawm al-qiyamah The most torment and most severe punishment that will be given to all people in the day judgment will be given to alimun la yanfa'uhu Allahu bi'ilmihi that that alim, that scholar of deen whom Allah Ta'ala did not enable them to benefit from within you if they didn't practice within you, they didn't live within you, they might have preached within you, that's something different. But they didn't personally practice it, they didn't live it. Allahu Akbar You'd be interested to know as a side note, one thing I discovered in the course of one of my research projects, Ashad bin Nafi Azaban. There are several hadith that begin with these three words. One muhaddith, his name was Imam Abu Jafar al-Tahawi al-Mautana, and his Shadu Mushkul al he actually gathered these hadith together. If I were ever to give you a dars on that, you'd be sweating, no matter how many aces we put up for you. Yeah, last time they came and they said they weren't in FACs and there wasn't generators, so some of our friends, they went and rented an AC for you, they rented a generator for you. How you better khatar gave that thing? If I ever talk to you, those hadiths, na, when I read it, hum to hil gave Us muhaddis ne jama kiya, he gathered all the hadiths that started with this. Ashaddun nasi azabun. The most severely tormented punishment given on the day of judgment will be given to such 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 people. Allahu Akbar Alright, so now Imam Azaz is going to do something else. Now he's going to advise the person using hadith, and then the advice he gave is you have to practice, you have to have amal. Now what Imam Azaz is going to do. <coughs> going to advise him now from a second source. First source was the Hadith, the greatest advisor was the Prophet Now he's going to advise him from a second source that the people who did do Amal, the people who actually had ilm and did Amal on their ilm, who had ilm and really lived their life according to the knowledge. So one person like that was Imam Janin Baghdadi Rimulatana. So he's going to advise him on that and I have to explain something to you about this as well. So it's narrated in Jinnan Baghdadi that somebody saw him in a dream. And I'm going to explain that to you in a moment. Somebody saw him in a dream after he died. And so it was said to him that what happened? What's the news? Abu Qasim was his kunya in Jinnan Baghdadi. So Jinnan Baghdadi said that all of those fancy discourses and nuggets and quotes that people used to quote me on, they were all wide of the mark. And all of the isharat and isharat, basically all the discourses I made and all the indications and subtleties I explained were all part of the word That nothing benefited me except few small rakahs of salah, few small cycles of prayer that I prayed them fi jawful layli in the depths of the night. 
means what benefited me was my amal. Not my fancy knowledge, not my fancy explanations, not my fancy tasawwuf. The only thing that benefited me was some small prayers I prayed in the middle of the night. Alright. Now, a question that arises with some people is that what does it mean to see somebody in a dream? And what does it mean that this person can say what happened to them? So understand a couple of things that we know from the authentic hadith of Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu Number one, when a person passes away from this world, they enter another state of existence which is called alam barzakh It's another realm of existence, another plane of existence, another dimension of existence. In that realm, plane of existence, there is no linear time. They're not on planet Earth with this rotation of the Earth around its axis. and There's nothing like that. There's no 24-hour day anymore. There's no AM, PM anymore. They've entered another realm of timelessness. This is also the answer to the question that if somebody gets azab cover and they died a thousand years ago and somebody does the same sin today and they get azab cover, they'll get less azab cover until they doesn't No. As soon as you enter the cover, you enter alam al you're not living on linear time. Everybody who wakes up, let me tell you another thing, that anybody who, any, everybody, not anybody, everybody, when Allah Ta'ala resurrects them on the Day of Judgment, it will be for them as if they spent equal time in the cover. The time spent in the cover is not based on 24-hour planet Earth time. You understand? Okay. Second, so number one, the person is in alam barza in a state of timelessness. Second, it comes in a day that when a person is pious, Allah Ta'ala makes his grave rosatum min riyadu jannah. Makes his grave from a garden from the gardens of jannah. And also comes in another hadith that when a person is not pious, Allah Ta'ala opens up a window on his, from his cover into the fire of jannah. It means the heat of that fire, and Allah, maybe even the burning of that fire reach him in the cover. Right? Now when this happens to a person in the cover, it's quite possible that Allah Ta'ala May, we don't know this for sure, no, but it's not Nakida. It's not Nakida. But it might be possible that when that person sees, let's say for the example, we would have this view that in Jain Baghdadi, Allah would have made his grave because he's from the pious, a garden from the gardens of Jannah. It's possible something an angel might tell him, as an example, when Murkur Nakir come, right? They might tell him that, okay, what benefited you was those few rakats you prayed in the middle of the night. There may be some way that information is given. Only Allah knows best. We don't know exactly all the details. And you don't have to believe as Akira anything other than the details that are mentioned in the Quran Sunnah. But it's a level of a possibility. Then what happens is when you see a person in a dream. A dream has no value whatsoever in our Sharia in Deen except a possibility. A dream does not provide certain knowledge. Alright? The point of Imam al quoting this story is not actually to do what I was doing for you to getting into the dream. The point was Imam Ghazali was using it to illustrate a teaching that even for somebody who is as learned and as profound and such a big alim sufi wali as Janid Baghdadi even for him is going to be based on amal. Nobody is beyond amal. There's no level you reach that you don't have to do amal. Alright? That's the purpose of mentioning this story. Alright. <coughs> Next page, so page number 8 from English. I will have met your beloved son that you should make sure that you're never bankrupt of good deeds. And you should never be empty of good states. A'mal and ahwal. These are the two Arabic words Imam Baliz. The one is you have to have good amal. You need good hal. 
Hal means what? Hal to sabr, hal to taqwa, hal to shukr, hal to haya. These are ahwal. These are feelings in the heart. So you need to have good actions and you have to have good feelings and good spiritual states. And then again he says that you should know for sure that look, knowledge alone, knowledge alone is not going to be able to assist you. He gives the example. The example of this is if there was a person who had ten Indian swords. We all will tell you people you will get happy on this. Right? Ashradu asyaf in Hindiya. So apparently even on the Arabs, Desi Tawar Baramashurti is the Arab man. So he says that even if somebody had ten Indian swords and he's using that, right, and some huge line attacks him, it's only going to benefit if he uses the sword. Having the sword is of no benefit. Using the sword is benefit. Having ilm is no benefit. Using ilm is benefit. The way we use ilm is by doing amal, by practicing on that ilm. So sometimes Imam Azai gives akli, we call it. Right? Akli means examples that a person can understand based on common sense. Right? So this is a common sense example. So he's giving Nasiya from Hadith. Nasiya from Oliyah Jain al-Baghdali. Nasiya through common sense. He's advising him through all the ways that a person can accept Nasiya. Alright. And he gives another example that indeed if a person has studied 100,000, it's not really intellectual, it's mas'alatan ilmiya, scholarly matters. He investigates 1,000 points of Islamic knowledge and he understands them thoroughly. But he doesn't practice it. So if he doesn't practice it, none of those 100,000 things he learned will be of any benefit to him without practicing. Then he gives another example, imagine if there's a person, and this is some example from medieval medicine, which I don't understand, but somebody has some type of fever, some type of jawdindus, whatever it is, and there is a cure for that, there's some herbal cure for that, but that person doesn't take that cure, having that cure won't benefit them, but they have to imbibe, infuse, they have to take the cure. Then he uses a Persian poem, and the Persian poem is that if you had 2,000, uh, if you poured yourself 2,000 cups of wine, but unless you drink, you won't be able to get drunk. Um, some, some people get worried, why, oh, toba, toba. why is Imam Zali talking about wine? Why is he talking about drinking? Imam Zali is not saying that you should drink. Alright? He's not believing in wine. He was giving yet another example through poets. And so it's no longer the case today, most likely for worse, but for better or worse, but likely for worse. But in the medieval period, poetry was also viewed as a source of knowledge. That the better poets were poets of wisdom. And in their poetry, in a few lines, they were able to capture meaning and emotion. Meaning and emotion and inspiration. And through poetry, people will be inspired to meaning and to feeling. So this is the notion, right? So the point is that even if you sit down and fill your wall with 2,000 tafsirs, or you read tafsir 2,000 times, but you don't practice it, then that nasha of the love for Allah SWT won't be yours. That intoxication of love for Allah SWT won't be yours. Somebody keeps giving this comments that you have to study for 100 years and collect 1,000 books, still you wouldn't get the mercy of Allah SWT, the rahmah of Allah SWT, and you then he quotes the verse from Quran, Allah says, insani illa ma sa'a. So now you're doing now, the ultimate is this here from Quran. Allah says in the Quran that no person will have anything except that they made effort for it. <coughs> so that person who truly yearns and desires to meet their Rabb, they should do a'mal as-salat, they should do righteous deeds and actions. Third verse he goes, 
that they will be rewarded for all the things that they used to do. Custom, so you have to do it to get rewarded for it. Fourth verse. So for the people who have iman and do and do righteous acts, they will have these gardens of Firdos and they will dwell, they will reside therein and dwell therein forever. And they will never be taken out from therein. Alright. Then next page. Our next phrase, next ayat. وَخَلَفَ مِنْ بَعْدِهِمْ خَلْفًا أَضَاءُ الصَّلَاةَ وَتَّبُوا الشَّهَوَاتِ فَسَوْفِ يَلْقَوْنَ غَيًّا إِلَّا مَنْ تَابَ وَآمَنَا وَأَمِلَ الصَّالِحَ فَأُولَاكَ يَلْقُلُنَ الْجَنَّةَ وَلَا يُظْلَمُونَ الشَّيْئَةِ So he's using this verse for the second part, the Iman, A'mal al-Salih, Tawbah, and Iman, and Amal. You have to do three. If you don't do the amal, you will not be able to enter into the gardens of Jannah. So he now. Then he goes back to counseling from Hadith. And what do you say about this Hadith? Quote, Buddha Islam al that Islam was predicated in five foundations to testify that Allah Allah, Muhammad Rasulullah, subhanahu wa ta'ala, wa sallam, and to establish the prayer regularly and to pay the cost properly and to fast the month of Ramadan and to offer hajj for those who are able. And means that all of these things are also amal. The reason he's going to say, look, the foundation is amal. It's not just these five amal, but the general teaching is that the foundation of deen is practice. Then, <coughs> he mentions that, uh, what is iman? So iman is to profess belief in Allah Ta'ala with your tongue, and also to truly, really believe in it through your limbs and acts and actions. And what is the proof of action? Is that... <coughs> Basically, the proofs in the Qur'an and Sunnah that mention the necessity for amal are more than can be counted. It means I've given you a few hadith and a few ayat and you know also that there's so many more things that talk about this. And then he says that, look, if a person could reach Jannah only due to the fazl and kalam, people will ultimately, truly only reach Jannah due to the fazl and kalam of Allah. He's also making clear less it be perceived that he's overstressing amal. No one enters Jannah based on their amal. Everyone enters Jannah on the Rahma, Fazl, Karam of Allah Subhanahu Nobody can earn Jannah. There's no amal like that. There's no amal, nama. There's no book of deeds that you said you're worthy of Jannah for those. Right? So he makes that clear also. However, however, what did he say that how does a person get that Fazl, Karam and Rahma of Allah Subhanahu a person gets that through obeying Allah Ta'ala, through worshipping Allah Ta'ala, and through practice. And then he quotes another verse, Rahmatullahi Karibun Mina Muslimin, that the mercy of Allah Ta'ala is near to the people who are of Ahsan, the Muslimin are the people who do Amal on Deen. Then he said that if somebody even mentioned this to you, that look, he's even mentioned indeed that a person can reach Jannah only with only Iman, no Amal. So he said, yes, I would say yes, however, how will they reach Jannah? Means what path will they have to go through? What difficulties and obstacles will they face? It means that person who has only Iman, yes, we know from Hadith they will reach Jannah, but they will have to go through Jahannam first. They will have to go through Jahannam to be purified of their sins. In another one of his works, Imam Ghazali gives the example of the goldsmith. And when he wants to purify gold from its impurities, 
the only way to do it is melt the gold. Then when you melt the gold completely, it becomes molten gold, then the hot liquid gold comes on one side, and the impurities go the other side. So yes, this person might, what Imam Zali mentioned in other work, is that person will have the gold of Imam, but it will have the impurities of sin. It will have the impurities of not doing amal. So the gold of Iman will have to be melted in the fire of Jannah. Now who wants to go to Jannah that route? Who wants to go to Jannah that route? So he's answering possible objections a person could raise. That penultimately one can do without amal. But then you don't want to do without amal because then you have to do with Jannah. If you want to do without Jahannam, you do with Amal. You want to do without Amal, you have to do with Jahannam. That's the simple English way to explain. Alright? Okay. Khair, uh, so basically this whole beginning of the answer that Imam Ghazali gives the student is Amal, 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 Amal. He keeps hammering it home. He keeps hammering it home. Alright? Uh, then he's going to... Uh, he quotes a saying of Hassan al-Basri who is one of the greatest of the Tabi'een one of the great and one of the top Tabi'een Rimullah Ta'ala uh, and he narrates that Allah Ta'ala will, add, will tell the people that look you will enter Jannah based on my Rahmah but then you will get a rank in Jannah based on your Amr so then in other words the question is that if a person ultimately enters Jannah due to the Rahmah, Karam and Fazl of Allah Ta'ala so what role do Amal play? Role number one, Amal will save you from having to go through Jahannam to get to Jannah. And role number two is when Allah Ta'ala admits us into Jannah inshaAllah Ta'ala from His Rahmah, Fazl and Karam our Daraja in Jannah our rank in Jannah will be based on Amal. Now, Nabi Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam will be in number one of the seven Jannah of Jannah of Pados. How close we will be in Jannah to how close, how Pados, hmm? how close we will be to Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam will be based on our Atman. That's not a small thing, right? Hmm? Imagine if I did that right now. Up to Pasiparot, eh? That when you go to Medina Manara, who can afford the hotel close to Masinabwe? Huh? In this world, it's about money. Who can afford it, right? But over there, it's not going to be about money. Hmm? In this world, money can get you closeness to Rosatul Anwar Sallallahu But in Jannah, you want to be close, it's going to be based on your Amal. Hmm? So, like people like that Umrah package, but they say 100 meters from Masjid Nabwe. 300 meters from Masjid Nabwe. So you should want that Jannah package, huh? 100 meters from Jannah for those. Inside Jannah for those, rather. Inside Jannah for those, 100 meters from the rest, the, but the Jakya, the palace domain, the Jannah to Sayyidina Rasulullah, he's some of us. So this is the way he's inspiring people to think. All right. Nice page number 12. He's going to go on now. Now what Imam Allah is going to do, actually here, uh, no, this is going to continue. Another page, all about Amal. Alright, so I will summarize this very quickly actually. I won't try to do much of the Arabic with you. So he says, I was my student, my dear beloved son. Look, if you don't do Amal, you will not get reward. Then he mentions the story of one of the people from Bani Israel. This is a Jeev story also. From the Bani Israel. That what he used to worship Allah Subhanahu for 70 years. And Allah Ta'ala showed him, wanted to show the angels that look how much ikhlas this person is worshipping with. So then Allah Ta'ala sent him an angel, but in a human form. And then the angel then told him that look, all of this ibadah that you're doing is 
not going to benefit you, you're still not going to go to Jannah. So tell him that. So then the person said, well, I mean, if it was me and you, we'd say, okay, fine, then we might as well just give up Ibadat and enjoy life, right? If all this Ibadat I'm doing, I'm not going to go to Jannah anyway. But what did this person say? This person responded, and he said, نَحْنُ أُلِقْنَا لِلْإِبَادَةِ فَيَنْبَغِي لَنَا أَنْ نَعْبُدَهُ That look, we are created for Ibadah, and it befits us that we worship Him no matter what. So then when the angel went back to Allah Ta'ala, right, and obviously, the angel said that, Oh my Allah, you know best, but you know even better than me what He said. So then Allah Ta'ala said to him that, Look, if my servants... This servant of mine, because my servant did not turn away from worshipping me, know that I will never turn my mercy karam puzzle away from him. Now what's the teaching separately to tell you about this hadith generally, is that sometimes you will find this in your life, not about Jannah, that you are making ibadah and things aren't getting better. You are making ibadah and your life is still a mess. You are making ibadah and you are still stuck. You're making ibadah and you're still worried. Remember the hadith. And think, no, I will continue ibadah. Because actually I wasn't doing ibadah just so that my masala gets resolved. No, I was doing ibadah because I'm abd. Because I'm abd and abid. And if you continue ibadah further, then Allah Ta'ala will send His khas rahmah fazl karam, His special rahmah mercy on you. His special? His special rahmah and mercy on you. Alright. Then he mentions the next day from Nabi Akareem Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Hasibu Anfusukum Kalla Antahasibu Kalla Antahasibu So you should call yourself to account before you are called to account and you should try to weigh your deeds before your deeds are weighed. In other words, when you go to sleep think, how much have I put on the right side of the scale? Let me think. Just nubaman, nazar, tasmeen. Let me estimate. How much good have I done today? And how much bad have I done today? How today? Today did I tip the scales in my favor on the Day of Judgment? Or today did I go and loss as far as I go on the Day of Judgment? Again, all of this has to do with Amal. Then again, he quotes Hassan, uh, then he quotes Sayyidina Ali, radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Now that person who thinks that they can get the qurb of Allah ta'ala without effort, they are severely deluded. There's another thing that some people think that Allah will grant them his qurb, not just maqfarab, but qurb. Without making any effort, no, they are seriously deluded, they are a wishful thinker. And that person who thinks, uh, and then he quotes Hassan al-Basri, that to seek Jannah without doing Amal, that itself is a sin. Yes, he said that's a sin. To think that you can acquire Jannah without doing the A'mal Saleh, Hassan al-Basri, that itself is a sin. And then he quotes Hadith of Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi that the wise person is the one who passes determination on their self and that person who does amal for what is going to happen to them after they die. And the ahmaq, the extremely foolish person, is the person who follows their passions, whims, and desires but still places all their hopes that Allah Ta'ala will send His mercy and forgiveness towards them and that Allah Ta'ala will enable them to fulfill their wishes uh, for us. Fulfill their wishes. Now, on page 14 onwards, he's going to focus on one particular amal. And he's going to spend a couple of pages on that. And that particular amal is Salatul Layl Qiyamul Layl Tahajjid Salah. So, this is the one amal that Imam al Ghazali was 
first advising the person who wants to become closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he says to him, look how many nights have you spent in your learning, reading, reciting, reviewing and student knowledge, how many all-nighters, nighters have you spent for a two-bit quiz or midterm or final exam? And when are you going to give life to the nights to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? So he asked him that I don't know what your motive and reason was in all this. Were you doing it to get the vanities and glories of this world? Were you trying to become famous with your fellow students and peers and associates? So he says to him, Woe upon you, woe upon you, if this was your reason. However, if your reason in studying knowledge so many years and so many nights was Ihya'i Shariat and Nabiyyi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam to revive the Sharia of Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and to fix your own character and to break that nafs that commands you to do evil so congratulations to you, glad tidings to you. And indeed, the poet has spoken truly when he said that it is foolish to be sleepless in the night for any reason except for the sake of Allah Taala, and it's foolish to cry for any absence and loss except crying over the distance from Allah's distance and loss of Allah Taala. Then he says, oh, my dear beloved, so then live whatever you want, but live however you want, but know that ultimately you will die. And know that whatever you love, you will ultimately be separated from it. And do whatever you want, but know that you will have to face the consequences, reward or punishment of whatever it is that you do. Dear beloved, send every single thing that you have acquired through the knowledge of all, then you list a whole series of different branches of Islamic learning, which the fancy names are there in English. What have you acquired from that? And if you just waste your life in opposing the commandments of your Rabb, then all of that knowledge is wasteful for you. Then he quotes the next page, he quotes a saying from the Injil, another interesting thing. So you've seen Imam Ali quoting Quran, quoting Hadith. Quoting Sahaba Sayyidina Ali, quoting Tabin Hassan al Basri, quoting the early Sufiyadin in Baghdadi. Now he's even going to quote the Injil of Sayyidina. This was the breadth of his knowledge. Even in now, obviously, a brief comment I will make here is that the position of Islam is that the earlier scriptures were corrupted in some way. But the position of Islam is not that they've been corrupted entirely. An ordinary person is not told to do this because you need to spend your time learning Quran, Hadith, Sirah first. But a person like Imam Ghazali who has read all of that and understood of all of that, even they would go and look at the Injil, the Gospels, the Bible. And because they had the knowledge of Quran and Sunnah, you see, when you read the Injil, the Bible, you must follow one principle. And that principle, whatever in the Bible is contradictory to the Quran and Sunnah, I have to view it as untrue. Whatever in the Bible exactly corresponds, exactly identical to Quran and Sunnah, I will realize that it must be true, but still I will take my truth from the Quran and Sunnah because I have a higher source. And whatever is in the Bible that neither contradicts the Quran and Sunnah, nor is identical to it, is just additional information. I can accept that additional information, not as revealed knowledge, but as historical knowledge. Alright, that's the principle. Now obviously who can do that? Only a person who is a scholar of the Quran and Sunnah. Otherwise unless you've mastered Quran and Tafsir and you've mastered Hadith, you'll have no idea when you read in the Bible is this according to the Hadith or not because you don't know all the Hadith. But somebody like Imam al-Ghazali or could do that. So he used to do it. So it also shows you in the medieval Islamic tradition where people like to talk about pluralism, tolerance, openness. That was there in our scholars. So he read the Injil of Sayyidina Islam 
And so he brings something from that third category. This is not something that contradicts the Quran and Sunnah. It's also not something to be found identically in Quran. It's something additional. Something additional. So what is that additional teaching? From the moment the dead man is placed on there, coffin, beer, stretcher, taking them all the way up to the time when they enter their cover, Allah will ask them 40 questions. So this is not Aqidah, because the source is not Quran Sunnah. This is a possible piece of information, not necessary truth. Alright? Okay. So the first question of the 40 is that, Oh my Abid, my Abid, my worshipper, for years you purified yourself in the views of creation. Means you washed your face and you took showers and you wore nice clothes and you put spray. But you didn't purify yourself in front of me, which means you didn't purify your heart. Because Allah Ta'ala looks at the hearts of people. Allah Ta'ala looks at the hearts. What did you have? Did you have hatred? Did you have jealousy? Did you have lust? What did you have? It doesn't matter how nicely dressed you are. Alright? And then, and then, then every day Allah Ta'ala looks in your heart and says that, What are you doing for a ghair? You're doing so much for ghairullah. Why are you doing so much and feeling so much for ghairullah when it is my rahmah and fuzzle that has surrounded you? I'm your Rabb, I've given you everything, but you are doing everything for ghair, for others. Me who gave you everything, you do nothing for me, and those who gave you nothing, you do everything for them. This is another way to explain it. Now, how many of us really we fall in this category? We actually fall under this description. Alright. Then so he ends up by telling him this, that, oh dear student, that knowledge without action is madness. And action without knowledge, another well, What it means here is that action without knowledge can never happen. It's not possible that you can act without knowing what you're supposed to do. Right? You need hidayah. You would never be able to pray tajjud unless you knew there were hadith in which the Prophet talked about the hajjud. If you didn't know that, you would never be able to do it. Alright? Okay. Then he says a very interesting thing. That know that the knowledge which will not be able to keep you away from sins now, today, that knowledge isn't going to keep you away from the Jahannam on the Day of Judgment. Right? <coughs> so it means not just to amal on your ilm, but your ilm should be a means to keep you away from sin. Then he quotes from Quran al-Kareem that people will say on the Day of Judgment, Farjitna, Nakhul Saleha, they will say to Allah, send us back into the world. We'll do Amal al-Salih, but obviously you can never go back. And they will be told that you were foolish, you can never go back there again. That is the place from where you just came. Oh my dear beloved students, you should have Himma. Ijal Himma tafil ruhi, wal hazima tafil nafsi, wal mawtafil badani. That you should know you should have strength and determination when it comes to your ruh. And you must subdue and suppress the unlawful passions and desires of your nafs. And as far as your body goes, know that your body is just going to end up in the grave. And know that the ultimate destination of a person is the grave. And the people of the cemeteries and graveyards are waiting for you. They are waiting for you and expecting you to join them any moment. It's just a metaphor. It's a metaphor of a way of speaking. That, whoa, whoa, be careful that you don't reach them without zaab means without provisions, without the things you need for a journey. Oh, Page 18. Abu Bakr Siddiq was on, so he said, 
that uh, these bodies are simply cages for birds or a stable for beasts. What does it mean? The bird is the ruh and the beast is the nafs. Both your ruh and your nafs are inside your body. That's up to you what type of person you are. Outwardly, we're all the same. We're human beings, we're all the same physical, same human genetics, right? We're all the same physically. In that sense, genetically. It's inside what matters. Somebody is a creature of their nafs, that's beast. And somebody is a person of ruh. They're spiritual. They listen to Allah Ta'ala. They follow the sunnah. They make ibadah. They make zikr. They're a person of the ruh. They're like a bird. So when they die, the beast falls down. And when this person, the bird, will soar, the ruh. إِلْجِئِيرَ رَبِّكَ إِذَاضِيَةً مَرْضِيَةً All right. So, he, so this is what he mentions here. إِلْجِئِرَ uh, رَبِّكَ So he's mentioning that the bird is going to be a person like that. Like he mentions the throne. So this is interesting. Adiz bin Nabiya Kareem Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Sayyidina Sa'ad Sayyidina Sa'ad ibn Mu'ad radiallahu ta'ala who passed away the arch of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala trembled. So the notion that some commentators of Adiz have is that the ruh of Sayyidina when Allah Ta'ala inji ila rabbik so he called the ruh of Sa'ad up to him. Now when the ruh goes up to him it passes the arch like when Sayyidina Rasulullah went on Miraj and when he went to meet Allah Ta'ala he went all the way up, 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 up and then he went past the arch. So the earth trembled. That's one meaning that some commentators have taken this hadith and imams are using the hadith in that meaning here right now. And says if you are one of the beasts, then you should be worried because what does it say in Quran? That these people, they're like cattle, they're like beasts, they're like animals. No, they're even worse, more degraded than the animals. They're the people of Rasulullah. But Hassan al-Basri, he also said that uh, he, he was once given a drink of cold water and when he took it, he fainted. He dropped the cup and fainted. And when he came to somebody, asked him, that what happened to you? And he said, I remember in the Quran, when Allah mentions the people of Jahannam will be longing for cold water. And I was holding this cold water in my hand. And it reminded me of that. Look at these people. Who thinks like that? Me and you, we drink cold water. We don't think of that verse, right? Even those who know the verse, even the one who's hafiz. This is something different. You see what Imam Azali is teaching you. This is called Tasawwuf. This is something different. It's about Amal and Hal. Amal and Hal. To know and to feel. And when you know it, and you live it, and you practice it, and you feel it, then you're a true believer. To Amal and Hal, to practice and to feel. Right? So you remember that. Allah Akbar. So he remembered the verse. أَنْأَفِيذُ عَلَيْنَا مِنَ الْمَالِ that they will ask, the people of Jannah will talk out to the people of Jannah and say, send down some water to us. Or anything that Allah has given to you, send it to us. And he remembered that simply when drinking water in this world. Alright? So then again, he says, that, oh dear student, why do you, don't ever think that knowledge alone can be enough for you. You need amal, you need amal. Then what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when Nabi Akrim sallallahu alayhi wa mentioned in the hadith, and Allah ta'ala has a caller call out in the last surah of the night. Here's the Tajjid part is starting. The last surah of the night. Hal min sa'il? Is there anyone asking me? Hal min mustaghfir? Anybody seeking forgiveness of me? Hal min ta'ib? Anybody making tawbah to me? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has this call, has this call given out in the last third of the night, this is the time of Qubul al dua means our dua, su'al, our istighfar and our tawbah is especially more accepted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at this time. 
Once a group of Sahaba, they inherited that when Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Umar was in the company of Sayyidina Rasulullah and he said about him, Ni'mar Rajul, that what a fine person he is. Ni'mar Rajul huwa, law kana yusanni bin zayr, if only he would pray tajim. If only he would pray tajim. And just to, just to tell you the rest of this, Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Umar narrates that after the Prophet said this to him, after that he started praying to every night and never stopped. Right? Because this is what it means to be an Ummati. You want to follow the teachings of your Prophet. You want to be the way your Prophet wanted you to be. You want to be a good. The second he heard the Prophet say it, he did it. He's a true Ummati. That's Sahabi, Sahaba. We're true Ummatis. They taught us what it means to be an Ummati. Don't think this is some story for him. It's a lesson for us. It's a lesson for us. And then he said to another one of his Sahabah that don't sleep too much at night because otherwise it will leave you bankrupt, it will leave you poor on the Day of Judgment. What does it mean? That the worship of the night makes a person rich on the Day of Judgment. Sometimes we tell people in Urdu, dunya mein amir or akhrat mein fakir. Hmm? Even in dunya, if you're rich in this world and Allah downgrades you from being rich to poor, how worried would you be? So then imagine if you're rich in this world and you're poor in Akhirah. So the wealth of Akhirah lies in A'mal. The wealth of Akhirah lies in Ibadah. Hmm? We need to think. We're so focused on becoming rich in this world Maybe we'll end up being poor on the day of judgment and poor in Akhirah. Hmm? Something to think about. So then he tells him point blank to those students, now you must keep. وَمِنَ اللَّيْلِ فَتَحَجَّنْ بِهِ نَافِذَةً This is quote from Quran Karim. So he addresses it to a student that from portion of the night you should pray the Hajjad. It's nothing. It's extra for you. But it will be highly beneficial for you. Highly beneficial for you. Alright? Second ayah, that uh, the people at the time of Sahu or Sahri, pre-dawn, they make seeking forgiveness to Allah Subhanahu the same thing. So he notices into Amr, Shukr, and Dhikr. So this is a gentle command and invitation from Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala. is a way to do Shukr to Allah Ta'ala for enabling us to worship at night, and then we make the Dhikr of Allah Ta'ala at time. Sayyidina Rasulullah said that the three voices loved by Allah Ta'ala. One of those voices is the sound of the rooster, the cock, cockadoo-doo. That's the animal that basically does zikr at the time of Tajr. The time of Tajr and Fajr, these birds, they make the zikr of Allah Ta'ala at that time. So, beloved Allah Ta'ala. Second, and it's ajeeb that Allah, in the hadith, that comes first, because the second is, person who is reciting Qur'an, but that comes second in the hadith, right? So the zikr of the bird at the time of tahajjud is so beloved to Allah SWT. So then imagine if the insan would recite Qur'an and tahajjud salah at that time, then he will surpass the crow and the cock and the rooster. Hmm? But if the insan is sleeping at that time, then the cock and the crow and rooster has surpassed him. And the sound, the voice of the people begging Allah for forgiveness at that time. That's what Allah said. 
that indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created a wind <coughs> that it blows right before Fajr and sweeps up and takes all the dua, zikr, everything up to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is a metaphor he was using. Means like, uh, how can you say? This is a special time, right? The last third of the night. And over the ends, you can imagine if you look here just metaphorically, swoosh! Allah Ta'ala takes it back. As soon as Fajr starts, that special time is taken back by Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. And so all of the prayers and du'as and istighfar is stuck up to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. It's a metaphor, what he's saying. Alright? Uh, Then, uh, at the start of the awwal al at the start of the night, there's a person who calls out. A person who calls, a caller, not a person, a caller calls out from underneath the arsh of Allah let the ibad get up. لَيَكُمْ الْعَابِدُونَ So there are the people who worship all night. فَيَكُمُونَ وَيُسَلُّونَ مَا شَاءَ اللَّهِ So they stand and they rise and they pray however much Allah will use in Tufiq. Then the person make the caller, not a person. The caller makes a call in the half of the night. Shatr al-layli, nisf al-layli. Allah liyakimil qanitul. Qanitul, those who stand in worship. Faykumuna wa yusalluna. And then they stand and they worship Allah Ta'ala until suhoor. Then when it's time for suhoor, right before fajr, then another call, caller calls out. Liyakimil mustaghfirun, let those who seek forgiveness rise. And then they stand up and they rise and they seek the gifts of fajr. And then when Fajr starts, then the caller calls out, Make those who are ghafil get up and pray Fajr at least. Yeah? <laughs> Let those who are ghafil from the night worship, those who are negligent of the worship of the night, let them at least rise and pray the Fajr, the Fajr Sabah. And then how do they get up? And this may sound familiar. Huh? And look at this. فَيَكُومُنُوا مِنْ فُرْشِهِمْ فُرْشِهِمْ كَالْمَوْتَى They get up from their bed the way the dead arise from their graves. Yes, sluggish. Huh? Sluggish and kekateska. Sluggish and sleepy and drowsy and grumpy sometimes. Hmm? Grumpily waking up and grumpily setting off the alarm and dragging oneself up to Fajr. Allah, Imam Ali Ajit. He understood, when you read a few pages, you read, he understands the condition of the hearts of people. And he understands how to motivate and inspire them to do more. Alright? Alright, then the next page, I'm going to give you a stop when, he, when he, he's going to change uh, in about a couple of pages. I'm going to do a couple of more pages and give you a break. Luqman al-Hakim gave his son some advice. Alright, some things are in Surah Luqman and some things are mentioned in the Hadith. And he said that, Oh my beloved son, don't let that cock, rooster, crow outdo you by him getting up and doing the worship of the night and you neglecting it. And then he quotes this. This is a very famous Arabic poem actually. Very widely used Arabic poem in the classical Islam tradition. Okay, I will just stick to his translation. A dove moaned fairly in the dark one night on a branch when I was sleeping. I lied, yini by kaba, wabaytullahi, lokuntu ashika. And really, if I was a true ashik of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, how is it that the birds have beaten me in crying to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And I claim that I am the mad, passionate lover of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, yet I don't weep at the time of the lovers, and the animals are weeping at that time. Jeep. So again, it's all saying that even ishq, not just ilm, ilm requires amal. 
Even ishq requires amal. Just having ishq but you don't have amal is not true ishq. So both for ilm and for tasawwuf, both for ilm and for ishq, the asal is amal. The real deal is who is making those du'as to Allah at that time? Who is getting up at that time at night? Who is making those prayers? The essence of knowledge is this That you learn how to obey Allah Ta'ala And you know how to worship Allah Ta'ala That's the real knowledge That's the real knowledge Okay, and know that all obedience and all worship That is done according to the Sharia And all of its commandments and prohibitions In word and in deed In other words, every single thing that you do Say and every single thing that you do And everything that you lead Is all done according to the Sharia that is the knowledge that you need. Alright? Just like if you, this is a principle, one of the teachings of fiqh, that if you fast on the day of Eid, that's wrong. Now, first of all, I think fasting is a good amal, but it's Eid, and Allah Ta'ala doesn't want you to fast on Eid, you're Allah Ta'ala's guest. But if a person didn't have ilm, they would think, okay, Eid may extra bother me, rodamakta. It's wrong. Alright? And similarly, ayam at tashrik with the days of drying the meat, when you say those extra takbiyat, you would be asiya, you would be rebelling against the commandments of Allah. Similarly, were you to pray in a clothing that you had stolen, misappropriated from someone, or if you were to, <coughs> even, even all those, if you were to pray in the clothing that was appropriate from someone, even all of these things outwardly may have the form of worship, but actually they are sin because you are going against the commandment of Allah. Okay, I'm almost taking you to the break. All my dear brothers and sisters, you should know that a lot of the, that your speech and actions should be in accordance with the Sharia. Anything that any statements and any actions that are not according to the Sharia is going to be a manifest error. And it befits Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it befits you that you should. Oh, this is what I have to explain. Okay, I'm going to give you a small break here.